0: Let me ask I, you this. Let me take the first one, Mark. OK, you take yeah. the first one. Let me let me Jew. let me ask you
1: this. Right. Fucking let interrupting me ask, Jew.
2: <laughs> Just so I'm clear, you can say that, Mark. I can't. Right. The second, I say that the podcast is over. Correct. It's
1: a safe space. Don't worry. No one listens to us. You can say anything you want. When We're on the air. You could say fucking interrupting <laughs> Jew all you want. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts tablet, editor-at-large, Leah Liebowitz, The blissfully not yet a citizen and therefore cannot vote on Tuesday, Leah Liebowitz.
3: Baruch Hashem. The advantages of
1: non-citizenship <laughs> and American citizen by birth, by commitment, Stephanie Butnick.
3: Indeed. Hello.
1: Now, we are recording this on Friday, October 30th at 1236 Post Meridium, Eastern Eastern daylight time, the waning days of Eastern Daylight Time, the waning days before the election, we knew that as a podcast that drops on Thursday, next due to come out to you on November 5th, two days after the United States elections, there was absolutely nothing we could do before the election that would feel remotely relevant afterwards, like trying to record on Monday or on Tuesday without knowing the results of the election would turn us into these weird, you know, hibernating... We would be cicadas, right? Like dwelling underground to emerge every seven years or 13 years or whatever it is. So what we did was we decided to bring you this episode a few days early. We're gonna go before election day and you can listen to it in line as you're waiting to vote or on Tuesday night as you're taking a long walk and trying not to stress, all right? We're bringing you three interviews this week, each of them an interesting look at the world in 2020. First up. Scottish Jewish journalist Eve Barlow and by the way I've said it before Scottish Jews are the best Jews she lives in Los Angeles she's an expatriate she usually writes about music but more recently she's been writing a lot about anti-semitism and Zionism on Twitter but also for Tablet Magazine on the web second Beneath Chunder he is the first full-time Hindu chaplain at any American university he's the director of Hindu life at Princeton and finally a short visit with musician Adam Weiner of the band Low Cut Connie who has recently been performing outside hospitals for the COVID patients inside. So, Stephanie, uh, help our audience. What are you thinking about to take your mind off the election on this Friday, October 30th?
3: I feel this like very, very deep pull between like wanting to know every single thing that's available on the Internet about all sorts of things election related and also wanting to like put my head into a hole and like not come out for a long time. And so I'm trying to find the healthy balance of like staying informed. I mean, I've dropped my ballot off last weekend, so I've taken care of voting. But the question is, how do I stay sane, but also stay aware? And I'm actually, I'm sort of veering towards not paying attention this weekend. Um, there's just nothing that can happen this weekend that I am going to like need to know about. So I actually think maybe I will like do a Shabbat for my phone type of thing. Maybe just like mm. not be on my phone all weekend because there's nothing to know now. I mean. The funny thing is, like, even if we had recorded this podcast on Wednesday to air Thursday, we don't even know. Like, we still might not know. There's so much uncertainty. So, I, so I'm so i also trying to sort of reset my expectations, right? I, I'm aware that on Tuesday night at like 11 p.m., we might not know something definitive. And so I'm basically also trying not to see Election Day as the finish line, right? Because if I'm like, I just need to get to Tuesday and then it's all done, I want to prepare myself that actually maybe it's not going to be decided in that one night or conceded in that one night. So I'm trying to sort of like prepare for the. The marathon of this, and so I'm trying to like take it slow. Can you tell? I'm trying to.
1: I just need to get to the month of Nissan. To put it to put it in high school cross country terms, you know, it's a 5k race. You're at the mile mark of 3.1 miles. You're you're not you're not even rounding the corner. And
3: for me, 5k is, is hard. Like we had to do those in college for fencing, and they were not easy. They're long.
1: Liel, tell us about your self-care regimen in these days before the election?
0: Uh, I would say uh, drinking copiously and being historically morbid. Uh, the first part is kind of self-explanatory. Uh, it, you see me on Zoom now, so you can see the the liquor cabinet behind me, which is it's my- It's
3: really, the team has assembled on that bar cart.
0: Mm-hmm. It is one of my proudest possessions. It represents all nations of the world. But I think kind of a good reminder here is, you know, we've sort of, been through this before uh, as a people i bet you that there were like three wordy jews sitting in like the pale of settlements being like so i hear this a new Tsar. like what do we know about it is he good for the jews is he gonna be better than the other Tsar?" like these conversations never really go very far the things that do is focusing on you know studies focusing on your community focusing on family focusing on the values that are eternal, as opposed to those that will be gone, hopefully next Tuesday or Thursday or in a month and a half.
1: Leo, that is some serious shtetl wisdom. Yep. I'm a shtetl Jew, man. Basically, your wisdom is God bless and keep the czar far away from me. It's fiddler on the roof wisdom, right? Yes, I was just
3: thinking that's what it is. That is
1: precisely guys? And my beard is looking a bit tevye (laughs) It. Can I tell you guys what I've been doing? Please do. I have been researching down-ballot Jews, right? Because we, we know about the, the, the big-ticket Jews, right? We know that Kamala Harris has a Jewish husband. We might have a, a Jewish second gentleman. We know about the Kushners.
3: Melissa Cohen, don't forget her.
1: Melissa Cohen, right, wife of Hunter Biden. They're way too up-ticket for me. I'm joining Liel down in the shtetl. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the small-town people, the people running for dog catcher and city clerk. So I've spent the past couple of days going down my own internet wormhole of down-ballot Jews, the Jews running for stuff you didn't... You, you have to be from their district even to know. So can I tell you about some of my favorite Jews whom you haven't heard of? I can't for stuff. Okay. So first of all, I'm going to cheat a little bit at the beginning and mention Georgia senatorial candidate, John Ossoff. You've probably heard of John Ossoff if you're following because he ran before and narrowly lost. Dreamy. He's dreamy. He's like Beto O'Rourke mixed with Barack Obama mixed with Ivanka Trump. I mean, he's just he's just so easy on the eyes. He's Beto O'Rourke with Beto O'Rourke's winning record. Ow! (laughs) Ooh snap. Here's my question. Do you have any idea? I I love asking this question. What does this person do for a living when not running for office? Right. Because Stacey Abrams, who almost became governor of Georgia, you know what she does for a living, right? Do you know? No, no idea. Do you know? Okay. well, she was. She was in the Georgia State Senate. So to be fair, again, she's had a political career before she was a politician and after graduating from Yale Law School, among her many projects and various careers was write erotic fiction or romantic fiction. Good for her. Nobody talks about it. It's just kind of out like that's what she did. Okay, so good for her, right? And then she was a very serious state legislator and serious politician. John Ossoff, it turns out, is the managing director of a British documentary film company that does investigative journalism. They've made documentaries about ISIS and other things. So he telecommutes to London where he runs British documentary filmmaking projects.
3: How weird is that? even dreamier.
1: Right? Right? It's so dreamy. So dreamy. His uh, dating okay.
3: profile must just be amazing.
1: I wonder if he's married.
3: I have that no would, idea. I should have looked that up.
1: That would be some serious J-date and or J-swipe bait. He is married. Producer Josh, I want you now to go find out what, who his wife is, what she does for a living. Or husband. Uh, I think we would know if John Ossoff or husband did. Really? I think that would be in the news. John Ossoff's wife is Dr. Alicia Kramer, a gynecologist at Emory University. Oh my! So she's got the real job, and he sort of has various freelance projects. Uh, Mirav Ben David is running for Senate in Wyoming. She was born in Rehovot. Say that properly for me, Liel. Rehovot. Rehovot. Is it? It sounds like that's in in Israel. Yep. She's a Rehovot-born scientist. Um, She is a zoologist. She teaches zoology and physiology at the University of Wyoming. Where, according to her faculty biography, she studies the transport of nutrients from sea to land as a model system. She particularly focuses on the complex relationship between bears and salmon. And Lord knows we need a zoologist in Washington. Now, Sarah Jacobs is in an interesting... Uh, race because of California's jungle primary system. She's facing another Democrat who the other Democrat is a San Diego councilwoman named Georgette Gomez, who's been endorsed by AOC. Uh, She'd be the first queer Latina member of Congress, but she's probably not going to be because she's going to lose to Jewish American Sarah Jacobs, according to the polls. And what's also interesting about Sarah Jacobs is she's dating Amar Kampanajer, a Palestinian American who is the Democratic nominee in a neighboring district. So they could cool, have the, like that. the Jewish Palestinian. I would watch that rom com. Right. I, that, that I was is, that is a Netflix show about to happen. They could go to Congress together, live together, broker Middle East peace on their home, you know, in their in their off hours at home while watching Netflix, <laughs> and and then go in and represent their district. So that's just that's just hilarious. And uh, Christine Bubzer, who is running a quixotic race uh, in California's eighth district near Nevada, where she's she's probably I think she's supposed to lose. She is a convert to Judaism. She converted in 2007. She's a shofar blower and she's originally in the medical products field, but she also is a documentary producer. She produced Bird Dog Nation, which is a documentary that looks at some of the progressive politics spurred by Trump's election. People who got into politics after Trump won. Okay, so I've two to go. You ready? I've saved the best for last. In Texas, there is a Republican Jew named Moro Garza. So, Latino sounding name, 57 years old, but Jewish. And I'm just going to read from um I think it was the Jerusalem Post that that published this uh this little capsule of what's going on with him. Texas's 20th district it runs west of San Antonio. Okay. Moro Garza's background. Garza who was seeking to unseat Joaquin Castro, twin brother of former presidential hopeful Julian Castro. So, i.e., he's going to lose because Joaquin Castro is going to win. Doesn't fit the typical profile for a GOP candidate. He owns a San Antonio LGBTQ club called Pegasus, which is famous for its drag shows. But he told a conservative advocacy group, Texas Family Action, that he's in complete support of the Texas Republican platform, including traditional marriage. So his announcement that he was running led some in the LGBTQ community to call for a boycott of his club Pegasus. It also, of course, leads many in his Pegasus community to boycott voting for him. This is like totally blown up. And this is why we can't have nice things. Right. So his main thing is that he doesn't like socialism. That's his big issue, according to the report I read. he, He says fight socialism and keep America great. A year ago, he was on an Austin podcast hosted by one Abe Abdelhabi and the podcaster said to him, said you're sort of like a unicorn, you're a gay Latino man running on the Republican ticket for Congress. And Garza corrected him. Garza corrected him and said I'm a Jewish gay Hispanic running for Congress. So,
2: I feel
3: like that's like the end of a Jewish joke.
1: It's <laughs> And that is a junicorn. <laughs> Now, the Republican-Jewish coalition is not endorsing him, but U.S. Impact, which is a conservative pact that backs Indian-Americans, is endorsing him. So if he unseats Joaquin Castro, it will be with the help of the Indian-American Republican money, but not with the help of the gay money that is spent at his own club or the Republican money that he's seeking to represent.
3: Or the Jewish money, most importantly of all.
1: Or the Jewish money. Now,
3: (laughs) what do you... (laughs) <laughs> That's a lot. That like broke that just broke my brain. I'm not sure I can go on.
1: But you saved the best for last. But I've saved the best for last because as a resident of the greatest congressional district in the world, the Connecticut Third. Represented for a trillion years now by Rosa Deloro, a Democratic congresswoman who now has a purple streak in her hair and whom I see at the optician from time to time on Whitney Avenue, where she gets her incredibly funky glasses that put my boring spectacles to shame, right? She is she, cool glasses, cool purple streak, cool woman, grew up in Worcester Square, right near the pizza places. I mean, like serious New, New Haven Yechists through and through. She's facing her first real challenge in a while. And she's being challenged by one Margaret Stryker, who is a Republican who actually knocked on my door and told me she's a moderate Republican. She wants to bring Connecticut fiscal moderation, good old Yankee Republican virtues. And I said, oh, so what do you think of President Trump? And she hemmed and hawed. And I said, look, I'm going to make a deal with you right now. I said, if you will, I'm going to take out my iPhone. I said, if you will denounce President Trump and say he's a madman and a crazy... I will vote for you because we need more old Yankee moderate Republicans. Like, I will actually turn my back on Rosa DeLauro and vote for you if you will tell me that you're an old-fashioned pre-Trump Republican and you reject his kind of Republican Party. I'll cast my first Republican ballot, I think, ever. And she wouldn't do it. So, meanwhile, I detained her for like 20 or 30 minutes, which is always my goal, you know, because that keeps her from getting to other doors. So it's kind of my stealthy thing. So I met Margaret Stryker. Now, Margaret Stryker is Jewish, and she has been attacking Rosa DeLauro, saying that she is more pro-Israel and, you know, better with the Jews. To which Rosa DeLauro has said, you know, bite me, my husband is one Stanley Greenberg, famous Democratic pollster. She didn't literally say bite me, but her, you know, she's like, look, I know I know from Jews, I've been Jewing it with Stanley and the mishpucha.
3: <laughs> she's like, <laughs> I also go to the optician with Mark Oppenheimer. That's right,
1: that's right, exactly. So she's all Greenberging on Margaret Stryker. Now, the district, by the way, has... As very, you know, we have some Jews, but we have a lot of Italian Americans. Margaret Stryker, who is a single mom, I believe, is like, look, you think you know Jews? I know Italians because my ex-husband and the father of my children is an Italian American. At which point Rosa DeLoro, whose mother, Luisa DeLoro was the alder woman from Worcester Square for about a trillion years, is like, fuck you. You don't know Italians, I'm Rosa DeLoro." And Margaret Stryker's like, I used to sleep with an Italian guy who gave me children. So they're like having at each other. Oh, by the way, Margaret Stryker is more pro-Columbus <laughs> because they took down the Columbus statue in Worcester Square. Oh, and Rosa DeLoro was like, she's a progressive, but she's an Italian, so she tried to like strike a balance. Margaret Stryker's full on MAGA, like, keep Columbus great. So she's pitching the Italian vote. <laughs> that trying to take it away from Rosa DeLoro. Meanwhile, this gets even better because, meanwhile, there's a Green Party (laughs) candidate named Justin Paglino, who is himself Paglino. He's Italian. So he's like, Rosa, you know, you might be DeLoro and Margaret, you might have an ex-husband, but I'm Justin Paglino. And then he's like, but actually I can split the difference because I'm married to a Jewish woman. My children are Jews. So Paglino's got the Jewish wife and kids. And, and then he, at some point he's like, and they went to Hebrew school too. Rose has got the Jewish husband. Margaret Stryker's the Jew, but she wants the Italian vote. It, it,
4: it's- And, and Daniel it, Day-Lewis
0: comes out Mwah. with a top hat, says it's a great night for America. And then they all have fist fights because you're basically
1: looking at the gangs of New York here, the gangs of New Haven. Whatever happens, we will celebrate with a veggie bomb from modern abits on State Street.
3: Mark, it sounds like you're taking this all really, really well. You're really in a calm and
1: relaxed place. As, as, as long as I could just hang in the Connecticut Third and get my pizza, get my uh, beats, as they say, I'm all good.
3: A few months ago, a friend messaged me on Instagram and said, you have to follow Eve Barlow," And I did. And Eve Barlow, it turns out, is a Scottish journalist living in LA who covers the music industry. And over the years, she's covered everyone from up and coming artists to the biggest musicians in the world for places like Pitchfork and Billboard and GQ. But recently, and the reason why my friend wanted me to follow Eve Barlow is because she's writing a lot about anti-Semitism, particularly on Twitter and Instagram, where she has pretty big platforms, but also in the pages of Tablet Magazine, including a recent piece she wrote that was titled Wake Up America and Smell the Anti-Semitism. In that piece, she sort of argues that because she's Scottish, right, because she's not American-born and because she spent time living in various places across the UK, she actually has an interesting vantage point and can see what a lot of American Jews seem to be missing. So here's our conversation with Eve Barlow last week about America, anti-semitism, the UK, Scottish Jews, and so much more. Our Jew of the Week is Eve Barlow. She's a Scottish freelance music journalist living in L.A. who has recently started writing pretty extensively about anti-Semitism in America. This includes an article she published in Tablet titled Wake Up America and Smell the Anti-Semitism. Welcome, Eve.
5: Hello. That was quite an introduction.
3: I just read what you do and that's it.
1: (laughs) Eve, we want to get to so much about you. I principally want to talk about Scotland, which is my favorite country. Why don't we first talk about the piece you wrote for Tablet, the unimprovably titled piece calling on us to wake up and smell the anti-Semitism? Normally, we don't have our alarms rung by Scottish immigrants telling us, wake up and smell the anti-Semitism. Like, that's not how we usually get up in the morning and think about anti-Semitism. is the Scotswoman came here to tell us that we're putting <laughs> our heads in the sand. But apparently we are. When did you move here and when did you figure out that you'd come to an end? anti-Semitism haunted land.
5: I came here in November 2014, and I pretty immediately felt like I'd kind of made Aliyah. I was living in Studio City, and I remember going to the local CVS, and there was just giant menorahs everywhere. And I'd never heard, because it was obviously, you know, holiday season.
1: Scottish pharmacies don't stock menorahs. (laughs)
5: <laughs> no, I'd never seen anything like this. I, and I thought maybe CBS was, you know, some kind of Jewish store or something. I was very, very confused. So I did immediately feel very much like I was living in a different environment in terms of Jewish visibility that felt more welcomed, but because I had really come over during a time of increased antisemitism in the UK, I kind of was on my alert with regards to whether or not this just looked okay, or if there, you know, if this was some grand cover-up for something else, and really, I think I've always been a bit more highly attuned than perhaps some people that I, you know, lo- lo- know and love around me, but have never experienced the kind of antisemitism that was so overt in the UK during the 2000s and 2010s, particularly in sort of academic institutions and in liberal arts world, you know. So I was kind of coming with that experience and my radar for it has always been there. You know, it's never left.
1: So what were the flashing red
5: lights? So many. There were so many examples offered in the piece from, you know, targeting of of Jewish buildings with graffiti at, at BLM protests to the burning down of the Chabad in Delaware to Actually, a lot of the online diatribe that really reflected because I've been a big voice on Twitter and increasingly now Instagram for the past 10 years plus. And most of what I was doing was writing about music and film and pop culture because that's my background. But every now and then I would get incensed by political and social issues to do with Jews and anti-Semitism, And I would be met with the responses it was really the responses from my own community the progressive sort of liberal left that frightened me the most because they gave me such a, a visceral emotional reaction of feeling like I was being I don't know like spat on really and you know really degraded and I began to see a similar like a carbon copy version of that happening over here whenever I would raise reasonable concerns about, I don't know, anything from sort of anti-Zionism on the left to the scapegoating of Orthodox Jews for COVID. It's hard to pinpoint certain things because it feels like it's a daily barrage at the moment of something new every day that's making the Jewish community feel like it has to be defensive or be silent where I really firmly believe that we have to do the opposite of that and speak up and get louder one of my my best friends or my oldest friend is a man called Ben Freeman who lives in Hong Kong and is an educator in Jewish identity and anti-semitism and, and Holocaust education and he has always reminded me you know anti-semitism isn't rising it is risen and it, it never went away, and I think that there was a huge element in America, certainly, of believing that the exceptionalism of this country created an environment in which anti-Semitism wasn't something to worry about. And you, you talk about me being this this Scot infiltrating the country and ringing ringing the bell, but I think for for people who come from other parts of the diaspora who have experienced this kind of ostracization and annihilation and isolation as a result of anti-Semitism, we're less precious, perhaps, about just calling it out because we recognize it as something that that we've shared in the past.
1: You've been to this rodeo, as we say, in America. Yes. And yet at the same time, I imagine that
0: you must feel some sense of you know, profound homelessness, right? Because here you are, you're at the CVS, you're like, there's a menorah here, all my struggles are over, it's the Golden Medina, I'm, I'm safe. And then six minutes later, it's like, everyone in my community seems to be really weird about shoes is, is there a moment of just like utter like despair? Or is it kind of just like, oh, okay, well, business as usual?
5: Oh, no, it, there, it comes in waves. It definitely comes in waves. It's very difficult. I, you know, a lot of the work I've done as a journalist in the, the pop culture world, I really been at the vanguard of a lot of intersectional conversations as regards the me too movement i'm a queer person so i've done a lot to increase lgbtq verticals and you know traditionally straight media properties and it's really really painful and it feels like a betrayal to receive not just like an ignoring of the threats to the Jewish aspect of my identity, because we're all made of multitudes, right? We're not just Jewish. We're a bunch of other things, too. But that multitude seemed to be the one that didn't matter to all of my progressive circles. That is a feeling of isolation that definitely comes in waves. And it feels like the walls are closing in. You know, it's so hard to know. Who to trust and who is genuinely providing a space of safety, and who is prepared to actually try and make the non-Jewish world a safer space for proud Jewish people. Because anti-Semitism is actually not our problem. I mean, it does it does affect us, of course. It abjectly affects us every day, but it's not Jewish people who are perpetrating. Anti-Semitism. It's the non-Jewish world that has a historic thousands of years old problem with anti-Semitism that manifests itself in different ways and mutates in every generation to a different pocket of society and is communicated in different ways, but never goes away. And of course, there are Jews that perpetrate that anti-Semitism because they are trying to fit into what non-Jewish society requires of them. So ultimately, I don't blame Jewish people for harboring anti-Semitic views. I blame the non-Jewish world for it. And it's the non-Jews, particularly for me, in progressive spaces, because that's where I consider my political home to be, it's for those people to start taking this seriously and to listen to us. It's really astounding the lack of solidarity when you compare it with all of the other waves of solidarity that exist around different intersectional identity-driven issues. But yeah, I I wouldn't say that it's something that I can just brush off. It's kind of, you know, a monkey on my back or whatever all the time where I feel it, but it doesn't, so far it's yet to derail me from continuing to speak out. And I'm hopeful that it won't. You know,
3: there's something interesting in your piece, because yes, obviously you are adrift in progressive circles, and that's something we've heard before, but you're also calling out Jews who don't want to see anti-Semitism. And I'm I'm going to out myself. Like, I am definitely one of those people. Yes, we host a Jewish podcast and we talk about all this anti-Semitism, but I I hate sort of being the person who's like, look at that thing that happened. That's anti-Semitism. Like, I have almost ingrained in me this idea of like, we are privileged, we are fine. It's worse for other people. Like, what do you say to someone like me who actually like doesn't really want to see it? I completely
5: relate to you, and I think that is definitely something that I have felt in my life before, and and then things just got so beyond. Horrific, especially for Jews in the UK around the rise of of Jeremy Corbyn, that it became a matter of not having a choice in the matter of speaking out anymore. And I think in that regard, I do empathize with your thoughts there because I think that other diasporic Jews outside of America, because of experiences related to their own countries and their own communities are maybe have had that element of choice removed by this point and don't feel so much like they, I think there's something I say in my piece about how American Jews feel like they will fight any fight but their own. Of course we should fight all of these other fights. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. It's so important to us as a people to be lights for other communities, but where I stand is that we should never do it at the behest of our own fight because to me it's untenable to ask a Jewish person to join a fight that is actually actively discriminating against Jewish voices unless they make themselves smaller and they reject certain elements of their identity. What I would say to you, is to answer your question, is that you should really trust your sort of emotional reaction to the anti-Semitic thing in and of itself. And I don't know, I think there's a lot of shame that we have inherited intergenerationally as well and and there's a lot of trauma that we've inherited and we almost we don't want to see it because we know the reality of what happens when society turns against us and it's it's horrifying and there are so many examples of it throughout history we don't want to possibly be faced with the reality that that might be something that could exist in this you know I'm not going to speak of America as my home because it's Well, it's my adopted home. But for, you know, for Americans, I can only imagine how testing and difficult it must be to consider that these things could exist in a country that represents so much in terms of freedom of identity and expression and acceptance
1: agreed and we would love for you to speak on our behalf don't worry about it we do a very bad job of speaking on our own behalf <laughs> Yeah, please
3: do you, your accent is better <laughs> like just do it for us
1: right but let's talk a little bit about scottish jewry because when there have been times in our recent past when i've thought america's not working out so well i have thought we can go to israel we can go to canada where we can go to Scotland because every Scottish Jew I've met, and I've met them in Israel, Scotland, and America, they're just phenomenal people. And they're
5: probably all my relatives because there's barely any of us.
1: <laughs> They've got the sort of classy poshness of, of the English Jews, but they're Scottish. So they're drinking by 10 in the morning and they're friendly <laughs> and they're just like, they're cool. Where did you grow up in Scotland? What was the community like? Let me keep idealizing you. Don't tell me the bad stuff, just the good stuff.
5: There's only good to tell. I grew up in Glasgow, which is the biggest city in terms of Jewish population in Scotland but I don't actually have figures off the top of my head but you know it's not a huge community it's a couple of thousand Jews who live in Scotland well in Glasgow is the the main nucleus and I was born in 1986 so I was growing up in the sort of late 80s early 90s there were six synagogues five of them were traditional orthodox synagogues one reformed synagogue we had a butcher's and a deli, a culture deli, and a bakery. And from the time I left Glasgow in 2004... The, I think the reform synagogue was still active, as was my synagogue, but I think all of the other ones were debunked and the butchers certainly no longer existed. The bakery slash deli became one and still stands, but it was very much kind of watching a, a beautiful close knit community get smaller and smaller. And I think that's what kind of, maybe that's some of the temerity that you and the coolness that you experienced because we, we do know that we're sort of unicorns over there and yeah and we, we have to stick together but it was it was such a beautiful homey environment and I I loved being Jewish in Glasgow in within my community I was quite quiet about my Judaism outside of it I went to a Jewish primary school which is your version of elementary school it was the only one in Scotland and I, I think it's I'm not sure if it's still denominationally Jewish but it definitely respects its history but it's not a school that only Jewish children go to. And it wasn't in my day either, but we only had one or two students per class who were not Jewish. So
1: I suppose you're going to say things like, you know, opportunity and jobs and stuff, but why would you ever leave? I mean, that sounds so much more idyllic than Studio City or Burbank or, you know, Oxnard.
5: It felt like there was no future there. It felt like in order to continue to sort of proliferate Jewry, we had to leave because our options in Glasgow were, were so limited and small and really outside of the Jewish community. I don't, certainly don't remember us being like very loud in secular society. I mean I in my high school I went to a Christian high school. I, You know people knew I was Jewish but I sort of like explained my dietary requirements away as veganism and you know I am um, I certainly didn't tell anyone that I was holidaying to Israel. I never told people that. Like I, I knew that that probably wasn't a good idea.
0: You're like, guys, for the next week, I'm just going to be gluten-free, okay? I'm going <laughs> to eat my cracker. Don't worry about it.
5: I have a f- abject fear of bread suddenly. I don't <laughs> Yeah. And also, I think that was a feeling that was passed down to us by our parents, too, who who saw the community dwindling and and really just wanted the best for us and wanted us to have more options. And I went to university in Manchester because at the time that was one of the biggest Jewish student bodies in the UK, sort of Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham. Outside of London, those were sort of the provincial spaces, spaces where the highest number of of Jews in the student body existed. And it was important to me at that time, leaving home at the age of 17, that there was a big Jewish community that could support me. I mean, I chose an institution according to why I was studying and and where I was good to go, but I didn't actually choose the best institution for my course in the end. I chose one that amalgamated those two things because having a Jewish life on campus was really important to me.
1: What are you working on now? You've written a couple really terrific and provocative essays for Tablet on Jewish themes, one on Amy Winehouse, one on anti-Semitism. What do you have in store?
5: At the moment, I am continuing to oscillate between music journalism, interviewing bands and artists, as I've always done, and writing about their records and their life stories, And also being a really loud, active voice on social media. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's not a job per se. And I really reject the word activist because I feel like that, again, denotes this element of choice. I just feel compelled to speak to this community that I've built over the past, in a greater degree over the past six months, as American Jews have flocked to a couple of accounts online to try and figure out how to talk about this feeling that they have in their gut that they really know they can't ignore forever. So I'm continuing to do that, and I'm I'm continuing to work on I'm trying to work on a story for Tablet right now. It's a music story though. It's not about anti-Semitism, but
1: you never know where it might go. You can shoehorn anti-Semitism into any story.
3: <laughs> a friend of mine DM'd me on Instagram and sent me something you had posted and said you should follow Eve Barlow. She's like a very amazing voice on anti-Semitism. And then I get to your profile. This is before you had written for Tablet, and I was like. But she's a music journalist. And so there's sort of like this funny cognitive dissonance where I imagine that there are a lot of people on Instagram who follow you, who started following you three years ago because they loved your coverage of like up and coming bands and artists. And now we're sort of getting like a lot of education almost. I mean, are you hearing from people? Like, are you what do they say?
5: I am. Yeah. You know, like the, the Billie Eilish fans who are like, <laughs> oh, you know, <laughs> who have this like amazing education in anti-Semitism now. And a lot of them haven't gone away. And I'm, I'm not just talking about Billie Eilish fans. I mean you know, fans of all different types of music. I mean, people came to my page because they wanted to, you know, maybe listen to more Detroit techno music or or they wanted to know what the next band like the 1975 were going to be or whatever. And uh, they found themselves now caught in this daily diatribe that I, that I rain on people about Jewish identity. And I think actually, you know, it's a really important question because It's foundational to why I did. I made a conscious decision to start doing this. And I did it because I knew that I existed in this weird Venn diagram space that very few people existed, where I had a captive audience of not just left leaning progressive artistic voices, but voices that have huge influence and huge platforms, you know, and I'm not going to offer the list of numbers in my iPhone or whatever or famous accounts who follow me online, but I have been a fundamental part of many an artist's nascent and and growth, and and I do have those eyes on me, and I want to be able to use my space for these conversations so that those people too can see this happening, and they, you know, one of the the basis from the nineteen seventy five yesterday shared my reaction to the EHRC report on Labour anti-Semitism and and Jeremy Corbyn and that's enormous to me because that conversation is not happening in that space and what we've been seeing over the past few years you know the reason why I found out that Zionism had become such a dirty word is because of stan culture because kids who are like defending their favorite k-pop band or going off about Harry Styles on TikTok or calling people who don't like Blackpink or hate the new Niall Horan record Zionists, as in, you know, you're you're a racist, you're a Zionist, you're a homophobe, but just as a slur, they were using the word Zionist.
1: It's functioning the way faggot used to. Exactly. Didn't necessarily mean gay man. It, it was an all-purpose slur that because what could be worse than being compared to a gay man?
5: Totally. So I feel as though it's this is not a conversation that's happening in pop culture. It's not a popular conversation. It's not cool to stand up for Jews. So if I can make it a little, a little cool, slightly edgy, I don't know. I don't know if that's possible, but we'll try. Eve Barlow, we stand you. How
3: about that? Are we using that phrase correctly? <laughs> <laughs> um, everyone can find you online at, at Eve Barlow on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to what you continue to do. Thank you, guys. It's
5: been a pleasure to talk to you.
3: Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it.
1: our gentile of the week is vanit Chunder. he is coordinator for hindu life at princeton but how do you know you're the first Vineet? that's a big claim
2: so let me let me nuance it a little bit my position marks the first full-time university employed hindu chaplain in higher ed
0: you're our first hindu chaplain and we're very <laughs> thrilled to have you that's
2: all that really matters then
0: that's all that matters so let me start by asking you this. Most Jews spend about thirty-five percent of their emotional energy and time thinking and stressing out about what goes on when their kids go to college. They talk about, oh my God, my kid's in college. He's not gonna wanna be Jewish anymore. Is there a place in college where he could stay Jewish? Could he go to the Hillel, the Moshe house, the this, the that? Chabad. What is it like for Hindus in college campuses? Are you feeling the same stress? Are parents calling you up, please make sure that, you know, Timmy comes to services or <laughs> hangs out in the party. He's like, What's it like?
2: So yes and no. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of concern in terms of like, this is just a hugely important stage of life. And I think there's a vague sense. There's a kind of unspoken, maybe even unprocessed sense that like, wow, my kid's going to need some help navigating all this. Unfortunately, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think it's a beautiful thing that that Jewish parents actually have that concern or thinking in that way and and want Timmy to connect with those resources. And in some cases may even, not to trade in stereotypes, but may even raise hell and and, and put up a fight, even if Timmy's the only Jewish kid, to make sure Timmy has resources. That's something that I feel like with Hindu parents, it's not yet part of their vocabulary. So I wish Hindu parents, by and large, even knew that Hindu chaplaincy was a thing to be able to say, oh, I'm worried about my kid. I hope my kid connects with the Hindu chaplain. In my experience, our community is still in the place where they're like, wait, what do you do for a living again? Like, what is that? is that? Is that like a real thing? It's less, I think, something that's particular to Hindus in terms of their religious upbringing, as much as it's it's more of maybe like an immigrant first generation type of thing. Like when I was growing up, my parents and their generation, like the conventional wisdom was you just like, Put your head down, you got your work done, you did what you could to kind of pass, to assimilate to the best of your ability, but you were there to focus on your academics, to get that degree, to whatever and and stuff like extracurriculars, what to speak of like participation with like religious life, it just was like not a priority. I think that's starting to shift, and especially as there's more vocabulary, even around things like identity or co curricular or, you know, just like student life in general. I still have a lot of parents, for instance, not so much my Indian American parents, but my parents who are in India and their kids are international students, and they just don't know how American universities and colleges work. So to them, the whole notion of like student life and student centers and affinity centers and all of that writ large is a mystery. So I feel like our community is still learning. The
1: idea that we go to prestigious universities to partake in a cappella singing doesn't exactly translate to the rest of the world in the same way. <laughs>
2: exactly. And I think, you know, at least within the Hindu community, and maybe I'm being a little too harsh, I think for a lot of parents, even very religious parents in their own right, they see participation with a Hindu student group or even with like the Hindu Life program as not that different than participation in the a cappella group. It's like, okay, that's a cool thing. I guess if you have time, But, you know, your real thing there is to like study the hell out of computer science or physics or whatever.
1: When I was growing up, I didn't know many Indian Americans, but the ones I knew, they didn't seem particularly religious. Like Hindu identity, to the extent they had it, was pretty ethnic and cultural. But the idea of piety... I mean, I knew Jews who were seriously pious, right? I mean, largely in the Orthodox community, but even some who would identify outside it. And I certainly knew like Roman Catholics whom getting to mass, not getting was guilt-inducing and getting there could be like the start to a, a beautiful, clear day. And the relationship to Hinduism seemed to be different for a lot of Indian Americans I knew. And I guess I'm asking, does it work anthropologically differently on people? Is it less about showing up at particular rituals for particular rites and more about a kind of sense of the gods or the icons looking out for us in some sort of grand cultural way? I
2: think there's a lot going on there. And part of it may have to do with language and frameworks. There is an analog to what you might describe as like Jewish piety. I don't think most Hindus, even those who might be more scholarly inclined, I don't think they would necessarily use a language of piety around it, though. I think there's a sense in which there's a sort of a very public outward facing manifestation of Hindu faith and Hindu identity, which can feel very cultural and is is often very much tied to like holy days and holidays and celebrations and feasts and festivals. But there's also this really rich, inward looking, almost, I want to say private, although not private in the sense of like it's secretive, but private in the sense of It's a very individual kind of contemplative side of of the tradition. It's personal. And I think one of the challenges in, quote unquote, Western settings, settings where so much of the lexicon has been established in this very, I was going to say Judeo-Christian, but it's not. It's really kind of Christian and it's kind of Protestant Christian at that. Yeah. But I think one of the things that we all kind of take for granted is that like that framework of normalcy That's a very Protestant idea that has somehow become like the normative, right? So the idea of like congregational religion, I benefit from it. I take part in it. I think Hindu temples have adapted and will continue to adapt. I think what we do on campus is adapt. But if we're honest, what we're really doing is we're really kind of crafting a version of something that is not really the way that they did it back in the day, so to speak, or back in the, you know, the old country. So the idea of like religion being something that's very congregational, that's very like You show your piety by attending services. It's just a very different framework for Hindus. Some Hindus and some Hindu lineages very much operate like that and have certain days of the week where you do certain things. Or, you know, every week I need to, if not be at a temple, at least kind of recreate a temple environment in my dorm room or whatever. But there are others for whom that sense of like checking in at the house of worship or being part of a congregation, it's just like apples and oranges. It's just not a part of their religious vocabulary. And I don't think that that itself is a reason to assume that there's not a kind of an underlying deep spirituality or even piety. And so
0: what does success look like for you? Is it creating an environment where just people from similar backgrounds could be together? Is it opening up new pathways into learning more about their tradition and about the faith? Where is it that you put your your energy and your emphasis? I mean, at the
2: risk of sounding cute, it's always a both hand. It's got to be happening on multiple levels and in different places. And so, part of it is this project of calling out when something is constructive and adaptive. But I don't see that as a barrier to doing the work of adapting. So, for instance, in the context of my work at Princeton, yeah, we're we're crafting and creating things all the time, and some of it you know, may fall flat and it may feel contrived. But others kind of work pragmatically, even if it's very different than the way Hinduism has looked before. One of the things I think as Hindus we benefit from is inherently in the tradition, or I should say traditions, in the traditions that make up Hinduism, there is an inherent kind of respect for and an imperative to evolve and to grow. There is a sense in which even theologically, where nothing is static, where everything is constantly in flux, constantly fluid, constantly being born and coming to an end and being reborn. So even thinking of things like cycles of birth and death and rebirth and redeath, not just in terms of individuals, but even in terms of collectively, in terms of cultures, in terms of time itself being cyclical, if you have a metaphysical framework where time is cyclical, it's kind of hard to argue for too much rigidity and like, this is the way we did it. It's like, yeah, well, that's the way you did it in this one tiny moment in time, right? But if time is really this fluid flowing back and forth and up and down and everywhere, it gives a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of creative space and freedom to manifest and, and express what we would believe to be universal truth in a myriad of ways.
0: Who in the story is the enemy? I mean, I think if you talk to Jewish chaplains, a lot of them would say, well, The main challenge, the main obstacle is that a lot of kids, you know, they've had very little exposure to the tradition growing up. It simply doesn't matter that much to them. Therefore, of all the things they could do on campus, the a cappella group would be much more interesting to them than attending, say, a Shabbat dinner. What is it like from your perspective? Is it kind of like one factor that you look at and say, like, this is what I'm up against? I can tell you who's
2: not the enemy for us is the Jews. because. (laughs) Hindus, we love the Jews, let me tell you. Can
0: I just say that's the first time that the sentence has been uttered out loud <laughs> in the history of humankind.
2: Among the things that I'm very proud of in terms of my tradition, there's a lot of shit that I'm not proud of and that I feel like we need to deal with and we can talk about in this podcast or not. But but among the things I am proud of as far as Hinduism is our anti-Semitic report card. I think we get like really good grades. <laughs> You're pretty good, as, yeah. Right, like I, 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 I've heard it said that of all the places I think worldwide that Jews received or had the least problems in India,
0: we repaid you for that kindness by sending you all of the Israeli army veterans to go on year-long drunken, drugged-out treks through that beautiful nation. So you're welcome, I suppose. I don't
2: know if you're familiar with this place, Rishikesh, mm-hmm. which is which is a, a place of real deep spiritual significance and religious history for for Hindus, for Buddhists as well. And also it's become like this Israeli outpost. Like I was tripping over falafel stands right when I was with a group of, of students that I, I took to Rishikesh. We were like bumping into, you know, falafel stands, probably more than like samosa stands. So I don't know. That's someone's dissertation, but it's not mine. But the Hindu community is really sees a lot of itself and its aspiration. You know, speaking of generalizations, it sort of aspires towards the Jewish community, the Jewish American community in particular. I've heard the somewhat cringeworthy statement of, you know, we must look to the Jews. We must take the example of the Jews, right? Like, like Hindu uncles and aunties love that. When I say uncles and aunties, it's also my my kind of snarky shorthand way of saying, like, my parents' generation as a whole. There was this rhetoric, and and I think there's a darker side to it, because I think there was, like, some, you know, mixed-in Islamophobia, some mixed-in model minority, you know. The Jews have their shit together as far as financial and business and whatever, professional success. So there's a lot of other stuff there, but I think at its best, in its best face, it's this recognition that, like, the Jewish-American community has really prioritized serving the needs of its own, and particularly for its youth and and, and young adults or emerging adults. And I think that is something that I do take a lot of inspiration from. I shamelessly borrow from our Center for Jewish Life, because I think there are some really interesting parallels there. But I say that to to mention that in many ways, I think a lot of the experiences that, that you're describing with the Jewish American community and with young Jews on college campuses, in particular, I think the same would hold. So who's the enemy? I think it's a lot of the same enemies. I think it's apathy. I think it's materialism. I think it's wonky, dysfunctional, short-sighted definitions of things like success and achievement. You know, in one sense, that may seem really general and generic, but I think particularly from the standpoint of like Hindu spirituality, those really are the enemies. And those are the enemies that are meant to be conquered first and foremost within. So we are a tradition that, metaphysically really values and places a premium on working on oneself and particularly effacing the ego to the extent that i'm effacing the ego to that extent i'm i'm making real sort of spiritual and emotional progress to the extent that i am feeding that ego And I am emboldening it and and creating more of a situation in which I am the center of the universe. And if you agree with me, you're a friend. And if somehow I view you as a threat or a rival, you're an enemy. To that extent... I've got so much more work to do. I'm actually getting farther and farther from the core of what Hindu spirituality is supposed to be all about, anyway.
1: One of the things that we Jews specialize in is facile trivializing interpretations of Eastern religions. Jews love going off on a quest to Buddhism or Hinduism and sampling it in a totally in a way that totally demeans the actual depths of the tradition, partly to piss off our parents, partly to impress our neighbors, partly for the food. If a Jewish kid or adult wanted a thoughtful explication of hinduism is there a book they should start with a netflix series they should watch like where would you send someone to get something meaningful and non trivial about your tradition
2: as far as like sacred texts i would definitely recommend the bhagavad gita it's a text that has been really meaningful in my own life i think it has resonance sort of beyond the specific cultural context of Hinduism or India or Indian American identity or whatever.
0: Being Jewish, I'll interrupt you and tell you that the first time I read that text in high school, I was pretty much not able to function and think of anything else for about a week. And I go back to it about once a year and reread it. Really? It is astonishing. See, we didn't even plan that.
2: There you go. You got proof positive there. In terms of some some other more contemporary kind of, of literature, it's funny because I, I'm going to actually recommend a book, and this may be all sorts of controversial, but you really are open to that. The book that I'm going to recommend is actually called The Journey Within by a teacher named Radhanath Swami, who was one of my teachers and who was born into a Jewish American family in Highland Park, Illinois in 1950 and went on one of these journeys that you're talking about. But I want to push back a little bit, Mark, because I think, yes... There are those cases of the sort of like the cringeworthy, you know, dabbling in things and accepting a little bit of this and a little bit of that and doing the appropriation and doing all that. But there are also these deeper stories of people who I think really exemplify real transformation and really kind of zeroing in on the spiritual essence of traditions. And for me, this teacher has been one of those examples. And and this book, The Journey Within, is one that I would highly, highly recommend because I think it offers just a a beautiful and accessible understanding of yoga philosophy, of the Hindu tradition, and particularly of the devotional strand within the Hindu tradition, which has attracted so many folks from the Jewish background and other backgrounds as well.
1: And I should be clear that I don't have an ethical problem with what some people call appropriation. I think if people can pick and choose from other traditions to help them flourish, like gay gazint, as we Jews say, like go be healthy, be well. I just think a lot of those people as it happens, are douchebags, but some of them aren't. Some of those Jewish seekers end up really deep into other traditions in ways that are beautiful and not um, douchey.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I I practice yoga. I study yoga. I have the occasion to teach not so much the physical asana practice, but yoga philosophy, you know, the yoga community. and, And I think that's, you know, a bit of a loaded term, but I think by now there is a, a discernible yoga community. There may even be campuses now with yoga chaplains, which is a whole other thing. But the yoga community has some of the most beautiful individuals I've, I've ever met. And, and I've been like humbled and blown away by folks of all different ethnic, religious backgrounds who have just been, again, the most amazing, sort of spiritually mature, deep thinking people I've ever met. And the yoga community is also filled with like the douchiest douchebags I've ever met. <laughs> So it's a mixed bag, you know? What are you going to do? It's
0: human beings. We're recording this on the cusp of October, and a few years ago, you wrote an essay that really resonated with me, because I think a lot of Jews feel the same thing about Halloween. And it stayed with me because it was it was one of these things, you know, you write that uh, Halloween and Diwali pretty much happen frequently, the same week, sometimes the same day, making people kind of have to choose which tradition do they want to partake in right now, their Hindu tradition or their American tradition? I think for a lot of Jews, Halloween also presents a problem, even though there's no Jewish holiday, but it's sort of like, well, we have our own, we have Purim, which is not at all the Jewish Halloween, but for all intents and purposes in American common parlance, and how should we observe this Problematic holiday. So, what what was Halloween like growing up?
2: When I, when I was a, a lot younger, I think it brought up a lot of these tensions, and it brought up this feeling of being in this liminal space where I just really wanted to be, you know, an American. And for me, there are a few holidays that really typified that as much as Halloween did, particularly because you know Christmas and Easter obviously have their Christian connection. Thanksgiving was its own thing, but Halloween just really seemed like the epitome of like fun American holiday. And there was a tension point, especially when when the overlap with Diwali happened, where it was just almost like, like I was trying not to think about the fact that I was being pulled in these two different directions and never fully accepted into either one. The Halloween Diwali tension, it just like slapped me in the face with it. It said, like, you can't deny this. Like, you've got to choose one. You're like either one or the other. As I grew older and and went through that process of, of navigating and negotiating, I think I came much more to a place, and it's, a, it's an ongoing process, but I came much more to a place of, of being like pushing back and being like, well, who says you have to choose one or the other? Why can't it be both end? Why can't it be an amalgamation of things? Why can't I be intentional about choosing to engage with this or not? And why does that have to be some a call for someone else or even another culture to make for me? So- yeah, it was fun. I liked to eat a lot of candy and um, dress up in costumes. And I, I, I remember one year I dressed up and did the rounds and then came home and changed costumes and did the rounds again because I was just greedy for candy. So it was fun in all the ways that Halloween was fun for everyone else. But it also kind of brought up this this tension for me that now being a parent myself, I've my, my wife and I have an eleven year old daughter and and we do take her out trick-or-treating and she celebrates Halloween. But you know, it's I hope it's a little bit less problematic for her, but I hope she's not let off the hook to have to like navigate and negotiate herself because I think there's great growth that comes from it. My hope for her is that it just becomes a little bit less alienating and isolating and painful, and she can it's something that she can talk to us about in a way that I couldn't really talk to my parents about.
1: Finally, as a Gentile of the week, you have the distinct privilege of asking anything you want about Judaism in an entirely judgment-free, safe space. Is there anything you want to know about Mayan Liel's people that we can answer for you?
2: I want to ask why I only get to be a Gentile of the week. Like... <laughs> I want to go for the equivalent of valedictorian on this podcast. I want to be like, if you guys have like a best of series, I want you to put me up for Gentile of the year, Gentile of the decade.
1: You want to be in the tournament of champions at the end is basically what you're saying.
2: Basically. Yeah. I want to be honorary Jew is what I want to be. I want an honorary doctorate from the the podcast. I want, I want, that's the level that I'm shooting for.
1: First of all, you know, all Indians are honorary Jews. Sometimes they marry us and produce Hindus, as you know.
2: I've officiated at weddings. At Hindu uh, weddings? At, at Hindu weddings, yeah. Second,
1: you know, there are prep classes for this. There's Stanley Kaplan. So you do the work, we'll pull you along, and we can make you an honorary Jew. This is not impossible. Crazier things have happened. We appreciate the
2: interest. Fair enough. I'm going to go Princeton Review rather than, than, than Kaplan, but I <laughs> but appreciate the principle nonetheless. So in terms of questions, you know, I, I want to ask, what is one thing about being a Jew that sort of publicly or in politically correct spaces that you would say like no that's a terrible stereotype how dare you but like privately you're like yeah that's kind of true like they, they kind of got a, got us pegged on that one
1: I mean the the hardest thing for me is the fact that in certain communities an outsized percentage of the bad landlords of the slum lords doing section 8 housing are Orthodox Jews. And let me throw in all the caveats. There are plenty of Gentile slumlords and the vast majority of Orthodox landlords are good people. But there are these pockets where certain communities, there's this dysfunctional relationship where the landlording of Section 8 housing, which is always slum housing because the, the vouchers aren't enough money to make it quality housing. Right. So somebody has to be the middle person there. And sometimes it's communities of Orthodox Jews. And when I see that, it really hurts because I think it's bad for the people in the housing. It's bad for our people. It's kind of tough. It's very visible because you've got these guys in the black hats. But at the same time, I am so emphatic that we all stand together as Jews. Like I am not someone who thinks, whoever says, well, that's just the Orthodox. Like they're different from me because they're my cousins, like literally and metaphorically. So that's, but that's the one where probably like, it gives me the most sorus, the most agita or grief. Can I turn that back on you and say, is there a, I'm curious if there's something that you have in mind that you'd be willing to share about the Hindu community and stereotypes?
2: First of all, thank you. That was, that was, that was such a, a great answer and I really appreciate your honesty there. I also really appreciate that point of, you know, They're my cousins, and I think that's something that is also, meant really resonant as far as the kind of diversity within the Hindu community, but then also this feeling of like kinship and and not kind of resisting that temptation to throw to throw the other under the bus when it's like politically or otherwise expedient to do so.
1: I really have a strong distaste for Jews who who want to position themselves as like the good ones or the cultured ones or the ethical, you know, the, the progressive ones, as distinct from those. Just off the boat, crude, wheeling and dealing. It's just uh, that need to make that distinction is a very toxic and yeah. unfortunate thing.
2: Yeah, um, in terms of in terms of a, a kind of a Hindu response to the same question, I mean, it's a, it's a huge topic that I'll just I'll touch on. It is uh, how prevalent or how impactful caste can be, particularly in in the context of contemporary Hindus, you know, in the diaspora, particularly in America. On the one hand, I really, I I struggle with this because I really feel like it does get overstated. I think it's, we're seeing it being overstated again, I think for some very good reasons. And I say this again, as someone who identifies very strongly as progressive, as, you know, on the left, blah, blah, blah. But I do feel like there's a very quick equating of caste in terms of how it functions in in a kind of a cultural and, religious context within Hinduism and just like every other form of like oppression, racism, whatever, whatever. I kind of take issue with that. And I take issue with the way that it's been overstated. I think there's a colonial history to why it's it's, it's overstated, why it's presented, why you open up a middle schooler or high schooler's textbook on world religions or world cultures. The thing that's going to scream out at you and, and, and make you as a reader think this must be the central piece of, of, of Hinduism, it's going to be cast. And I think there's a really problematic history to that that has to do with the British really latching on to caste and and overstating it as a way to demonize the Indian other or the Hindu other, but also as a way of, for Protestant Christians in particular, as a way to um, work in, by analogy, anti-Semitism and anti-Catholic sentiment. And there's a whole genre of scholarship that looks at that, that looks at ways in which this sort of overstatement of caste also served as a backdoor critique of Catholicism and of Judaism in the context of Europe so I think there's all sorts of reasons caste gets overstated and privately behind closed doors I'll tell you like it does still factor in in ways that folks are, are doing things and 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 often don't even realize that they are kind of playing into some of those caste stereotypes they are sort of even if it's if it's something as, as simple as like a, a ritual purity mm-hmm. law, that no one thought about, like, you know, scratching beneath the surface, like, what's really going on here? Yeah, I mean, there's so many applications of it, but, but often it's in this space where people are like, no, no, I'm not castist. Like, that's not a cast thing. That's just da 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 And you're like, no, but actually it's, there is a little bit of that cast functioning underneath the surface.
1: So interesting. We will have to have you back to talk more. And that's an easy call because uh, Vineet Chunder is in strong running to be Gentile of the year. And we just started a new Jewish year. So it's 5781. We're collecting our Gentiles. We're going to have a tournament of champions at the end. You will be invited back for it.
2: Let everyone know where they can send in their votes. So I don't know if they text them in, like, (laughs) however you guys do it. But just send in those votes, people. I need this.
1: Vineet is coordinator for Hindu Life and Hindu chaplain at Princeton University, where he's been since 2008. He's the father of one. The son of two and a vegan, which we didn't even talk about. Next time. Thank you so much for being our dental of
2: the week. Thank you. Take care. Kom shalom.
0: Guys, I can't tell you how excited I am for our next guest. He is Adam Weiner, the frontman, the leader, the singer, the soul, the inspiration, the man behind the band Low Cut Connie. Now, look, I'm probably the most famous Low Cut Connie fan out there. But in August 2015, uh, this guy Barack Obama also loved the band enough to include one of their songs on a Spotify playlist of favorite songs. And in 2018, this other dude who's also kind of into music called Elton John dedicated a song to Low Cut Connie before tens of thousands of people. And then also the same year... Bruce Springsteen I'm told he's like a rabbi or something invited Adam backstage at his sold out super cool series of shows on Broadway to tell him what a big fan of low-cut Connie the boss truly was Nick Hornby's a fan Howard Stern's a fan Robert Christgau, the legendary rock critic is a fan this is an unbelievable band and if you haven't heard them yet You are going to be fans very quickly. You listen to an interview I did with Adam. Really, the the musical break you need right now. Our guest today is the frontman, the singer, the leader of... Can I say the greatest band out there? I mean, the Rolling Stones technically are still a band out there, so maybe one of the greatest band out there. But the greatest band that I've discovered in a very long time, Low Cut Connie. Hello, Adam Wiener.
6: What's up? I'm happy to be here.
0: You are our Jew of the Week. Have you ever been a Jew of the Week before? Only in my heart and in my mom's heart. <laughs> well, enjoy, enjoy the special glory that it confers. I want to start... Right off on a religious note, I have this theory of rock and roll. Basically, this is a very religious country, and religion used to happen in pews and synagogues and churches, and then people, for whatever reason, stopped attending, but the spirit still remained, which is where people like Little Richard found it. And they made music, which is profoundly religious music, and you could hear this tent revival ecstasy in their work. And then all kinds of stuff happens and this kind of religious, spiritual, ecstatic energy goes away. And then you listen to a band like Low Cut Connie and you realize there it is again. There is something about your music that aspires heavenwards. Am I insane?
6: No, you, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. People ask me, what kind of music do you make and what kind of music do you listen to? And I always say soul music. And when I say soul music, Of course I mean, you know, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Otis Redding, but I also mean what I call little S soul music. That could be rock and roll, country, hip hop, any music that is basically simple and aims to move you and move your heart, move your spirit. I contrast that with music that tries to be clever or progressive or following some sort of trend or fad. So the music that I try to make is the music that I listen to is soul music. My life had been so deeply affected by music performances that I had seen. I remember when I was in school in Memphis, Tennessee, I used to go see a lot of gospel music. In fact, I went to Al Green's church in Memphis. And I was like one of maybe two or three white people in this church. And I was moved to tears. I would go up to Harlem to churches and listen to gospel music and would be moved to tears. I would travel overseas and hear religious music in other languages and be moved to tears. And I truly believe in the power of art to to move our spirits. It's done it for me. I just happened to, by accident, end up in this thing called the music industry, which I never desired to be in any kind of industry. So I guess I just found my little niche that if I'm going to be here and if I'm going to have this little platform that I have and my fans – I might as well try to use it to move people and uh, uplift people's spirits with rock and roll because it's
0: done it for me. None of your music sounds like it's trying to consciously imitate Al Green, say, or sound like some other tradition. It sounds like something that is deeply personal. I mean, I see videos of you performing and you really look like a very shy person who has come to his own one person shul and then has this kind of almost Hasidic (laughs) moment of personal burning revelation. What goes on? You sit at the piano. There are a lot of people watching. Something happens to you. It's evident. What happens to you?
6: Sometimes people ask me, how do you become the character? Because you're right, I am very introverted and very shy and somewhat reserved and studious. And People that get to know me personally, they're shocked at how square and boring I am because they see the show, and in the show, you know, I'm semi nude and just, you know, a full contact, full emotional, physical, spiritual rock and roll experience. But you know what? When people ask me, how do you become this character? I correct them. I say, I don't become a character because that implies that you're sort of putting on a mask or a costume for the performance. For me, it's the opposite. It's taking off the masks that we wear every day. It's an unburdening and a freeing up of a more pure self. In our society, and in life, and in day-to-day, there's all sorts of things that we have to be in order to function in society. We have ideas about gender, age, race, and nationality, and political considerations, and all sorts of uh, things that we have running programs in our mind of how we are supposed to behave and be ourselves but when i get on stage those burdens are lightened and i truly shed all those skins and i just become this more pure self
0: so what mindset are you in right now as you as you're trying to to work on this new album politically tumultuous time global plague What a strange time to sit and try to write a meaningful statement about anything. Well,
6: to speak about other fellow Jewish writers that I love, Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen come to mind. This is a very tumultuous time, but the world is always an imperfect place. Bob Dylan has his song, Everything is Broken, and he wrote that in the late 80s. And it feels like it was written yesterday. He wrote a song called Masters of War in the early 60s, that I saw him perform right after 9-11, and it felt like it was written that day. You could perform that song now, and it would feel like it was written today. If you look around and you try to understand what it is to be a human being on this planet, you understand that there's always suffering, there's always poverty, there's always strife. So there should always be something to write about. There always will be. So I don't really approach this moment different than I would any other. I just constantly try to get better at reflecting the moment,
0: if you know what I mean. I will pay perhaps the ultimate compliment by saying that that I think you absolutely belong in the company of these two gentlemen whose name you mentioned, Dylan and, and Cohen. One thing that was so beautiful about, about watching Leonard performance, really these performances felt like they were you know the greatest Yom Kippur service you've ever attended. It was a real religious experience. Do you believe? That in the year 2020, with the current state of politics, with media being what it is, with social media being so prevalent and disastrous, with TikTok, with music having gone through so many changes, with everything, all the technology, all the vice, everything that we have today... Do you believe that popular music could still do that? Could still transform, transcend, carry us away?
6: Yeah, of course. It does it in my life every day. And, you know, I believe it more than I did a year ago, by the way, because all of a sudden over the last year, so many people around the world have been quarantined and lost so much and um, people are going through really real struggles. And, you know, during this quarantine, I've been performing in my house for my Tough Cookies show, these live streams. We have all these people that watch around the world and they share their stories. Some of these people have lost parents, have lost siblings, have lost their jobs. We have a lot of West Coast viewers, some of whom have lost homes in wildfires. We have Australian viewers who were affected by those fires earlier in the year. We have people with COVID in the hospital, in the ICU who are watching. There are wonderful things too. There's somebody, an OBGYN, airs our Tough Cookies broadcast while she's delivering babies. <laughs> We've had tough cookie, low-cut Connie babies. So it's, it's the full range of life's cycles and emotions, and it's playing out through this little forum that I do with my performances. And people send us these messages about how, it, how these songs and the shows get them through their day. I've had a lot of really rewarding moments with the music over the last 10 years, but nothing like this year. When I got to go to a a hospital and perform for COVID patients who were at the windows looking down on me in the courtyard, that's a moment I'll never forget. People that send us messages, somebody sent me a message the other day that they just lost their dad and their sister, and their family has a ritual of just tuning in every week to watch what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And that, that's sort of like their little like religious service on the weekend, which is funny because how many religious services do you hear the person say motherfucker like <laughs> 20 times a minute? <laughs> but if I can be of service to lift people up, like music has lifted me up out of depression and difficult times in my life, I see it working every day. I really do. And, and to your first point, when you first started the conversation about the state of the world and religion at the moment, our society is a more secular society than it used to be. But the desire for spiritual uplift and physical and emotional liberation, it's, that's eternal. And so I think music can truly fill that, that role.
0: Amen to that. And so Adam, let's all have a moment of uplift courtesy of you. Thank you so much for being our guest.
6: Oh, it was such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I, I uh,
0: hope to do it again sometime. Inshallah. So what should we play? What, what would you like to do?
6: I want to do a song for you. you all. We were talking about Leonard Cohen, who's one of my biggest heroes, who I love very much. This is a song I feel like Leonard helped me write. Leonard was really out of time. I've always felt like I was a little bit out of time. And when I listen to music like Hallelujah, Bird on a Wire... They're like little prayers, and they're things that we want to hear and we can sing forever. And I stumbled upon this song a couple years ago, and I started performing it for people. And it was one of the first songs I ever did where, when I would do it in concert, people would put their hands up. People would put their hands up, and that's when you know you got something. This is called Stay As Long As You
4: Like. Can you hear that? Can you
5: hear that?
4: I feel it coming Bad news down the line I heard you laughing Laughing to keep from crying Troubles, You see, but all through this evening, you get no troubles from me, stay with me a long time, stay for just one night. a good cry It's gonna be a shake up It might be hard to survive
0: Oh my, <laughs> man, this is, just, wow. Um, I'm very overwhelmed right now uh, and emotion.
6: Can I say something about that song real quick? Please. I, I think probably very few of your listeners will know who this is, but I want to mention that this song was inspired by a uh, performer named Amade Arduin, and he was a black Creole performer from Louisiana from the 1920s. And he played an accordion, and he sang in French, or sort of Creole. And he lived in southern Louisiana, and he uh, had a very difficult life. He he faced a lot of racism. He he was a black man in the South and he was singing these old French songs. But anyway, we have a few of his recordings that have survived from the 1920s that are some of the favorite my favorite music. His voice is as I've said to you, like the music that brings me to tears is soul music. And these scratchy old records from the nineteen twenties with this man singing in French, it, they're like these prayers to me. They are just timeless. And I thought about writing in his voice, like what, how could I write a song for him to sing, even though he's been deceased now for almost 100 years. And that's the, that was the beginning of Stay As Long As You Like.
0: I'm sure that he and St. Leonard and St. Little Richard uh, are all watching from above <laughs> and, and applauding.
4: <laughs> right there, there you have
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> Mazel tov. This week, I speak for all of us here at Unorthodox, Stephanie and Liel and Josh and Sarah and Robert and the, the whole gang. When I say thank you to all of you who brought us over the thousand donor mark, I have to say I'm being perfectly honest when I say I haven't even asked how much money we raised. I don't know if people gave an average of a dollar each or a hundred dollars each. All I know is that there were 1,025 of you who reached out, took the time to donate to keep us going, and it means the world to me. Thank you. Happy election season and a happy 5781. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts, unorthodox, at tabletmag.com, or call us, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scarmuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, and our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi David J.B. krishev of Congregation of Havas Israel in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We come to you from assorted electoral districts across the country. Make sure you go and vote. Shalom, friends. Fucking want an outro or no?
4: Um, OK.